What is up, Red Rocks Church? You guys doing all right today? At all of our campuses, we hope you're doing all right today. Let's do this. Let's welcome everyone at Littleton and Lakewood and Arvada and Golden. And can we give at all of our campuses just the most gracious round of applause to all the men and women at our God Behind Bars campuses. We love you, ladies and gentlemen. Love you, love you, love you. Such an honor that we get to worship with you guys week in and week out. And I was thinking just about our church in general a lot. And I've just been kind of giddy this week about Red Rocks Church and very grateful. And I just want to say this, every time at any of our campuses that you show up to this church and participate in any form or fashion, I don't take lightly that you chose this place. In America, there's churches now on almost every corner in almost every community. So when you chose Red Rocks, you made a statement to me that makes my job not only extremely fun, but it, it, it makes me humbled that you guys chose this place. And the fact that I get to come up every now and then throughout the year and teach and preach the gospel and the word of God to people that chose to be here, that fires me up. And I just want to take time before we pray for the message at all of our campuses to always make sure that you guys know how grateful I am and how humbled I am that I get to be a part, and I'm of course biased, but of what I think is the best local church in the United States of America. And so would you at all campuses, would you guys just give yourselves a round of applause because you make it a joy to work here. You guys really make it a joy to work here. Let's do this. We're starting a new series. Let's cover it in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is timeless, that it is perfect, that it is authoritative in a world that desperately needs some authority that is credible. God, I thank you that we can lean in in your word and find hope and extract joy and peace. And more than anything, God, I thank you that the source of it is your son, Jesus. And this is who we're here to celebrate yet again this weekend. And so, Jesus, I just pray at all of our campuses this whole weekend that you would be so honored, that you would sit in throne so pleased with your people because of our hearts and our desire to worship you in spirit and truth. Holy Spirit, now we ask that you would do what only you can do, which is work. Holy Spirit, convict. Holy Spirit, counsel. Holy Spirit, comfort. Holy Spirit, guide us into all the truth we need to walk out of these doors in freedom. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. In uh, 1986, I was in the sixth grade and my friend in sixth grade, she was having a birthday and her birthday party was going to be at a movie theater. No big deal, except I had never yet been to a movie theater. So this was going to be my first experience with the good old cinema. And there was a movie playing and we show up and I'm kind of overwhelmed because it's like 20 some foot screens by whatever. And there's Dolby surround. And I know times have changed, but back in 1986, nobody in their homes had Dolby surround, not even close. Right. And so I'm watching this. I've got snacks in hand. I'm sitting by all my friends in this theater. It's all dark. And I'm like, this is just the coolest thing ever. And not only that, but one of my top five movies of all time was this movie. Now, I don't know if it's partly because it was the first movie I ever saw, but I don't think it's even that. I just think the movie stands on its own merits. I think it's just an incredible movie. This, again, was 1986. Can any of you at any of our campuses real quickly shout out what movie you think I'm talking about? Shout it out. Be confident. Back to the Future. Oh, my word. You guys cheated. Yeah, it was, it was Back to the Future. Any fans? Any Back to the Future fans besides me? This movie has for almost 30 years now, 29 years, it has remained in my top five of all time. 
And what was fun about Back to the Future this particular year was a couple months ago, there was a little bit of a revival, right? Because in Back to the Future 2, which was made in 1989, they had this scene where Doc and Marty go into the future. And the writers in 1989 and the directors and the producers decided to make the future October 21st, 2000. 15, right? And so they had this scene of what they thought it would have looked like in 2015. And what's interesting is they actually got some of the stuff spot on. Now, some of it they got totally wrong, but a lot of it they got spot on. For example, they had uh, video conferencing that they were showing, like people talking to each other through TV screens. And now we have Skype, we have Facebook and all of those things, right? Like it, like it, like it's no big deal. They also, though, got some stuff wrong. They had flying cars in that scene. And in case you guys know something, I don't. I don't think we have flying cars yet. The DeLorean that Doc drove in the future, he was actually fueling it with, you know what? You people in Boulder, you love this. Garbage, right? Just keeping the environment clean. And they got that kind of right because in two seven, uh, 2017, I read that there's a prototype by Toyota. I cannot talk this whole weekend. I've got the spirit of Elmer Fudd. I'm like, hey, whoa, thank you for coming to Toots. Sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I, I've had too much Red Bull. I apologize. 2017, a prototype by Toyota which is a hydrogen fuel cell car that's going to be as clean as any car ever before. And what's interesting is they hired Doc and they hired Marty to do the advertising. So you'll be seeing that. They predicted that we would all have personal drones. And we don't all have personal drones yet, but you know more and more people are starting to have those little hovercrafts that they own. In fact, we as a church, we do a lot of filming with a drone that we actually own. They predicted this and they're not quite there yet, but I believe it's going to happen because this would be a dream for me. Hoverboards. Right? Remember in 2015, Marty had the skateboard that was levitating, it was floating. And we're getting close because one of the most uh, popular things for Christmas year is those, those, those um, what are they called? Someone, yeah, whatever they're called. They're here. We're getting close to the hoverboard is what I'm saying. Now, there's one that they got completely wrong, but it was close, closer than I would have thought. They said in 2015, October 21st, who would win the World Series? The Chicago Cubs. Now, we obviously know the Chicago Cubs are never going to win the World Series, but I can tell you this. We almost thought that Back to the Future was prophetic because they made it to the Final Four, right? They almost literally went to the World Series and had a shot at winning it. What's interesting about Back to the Future is in in 1986, when they made it, they made it for $19 million. That was about fair market value for a typical movie of, of that size back then. But what's interesting, in all the years since, almost 30 years They have made a total of $389 million on a $19 million movie. That constitutes what we call a box office hit, right? And I was thinking, okay, what makes Back to the Future a box office hit? What made it so special? And obviously, they put so many fun components in there that that we just all love to go and watch. It's pretty laid back. You don't walk out depressed. You walk out happy. You know, it taps into nostalgia while also taking a fun look at the future, right? But but one of the things that, that makes it a box office hit, and that's why we see so many movies around this idea, is that Back to the Future was tapping in to one of the most needed and desired things that the human soul has had since the beginning of time. And it is this, the human soul has this deep longing for both clarity and control about our future, right? Since the beginning of time, humanity has had somewhat of what I would call an obsession with the future. And if you really want to know why, I think we overcomplicate it. It's simple. In the Garden of Eden, 
When our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they took a bite out of that apple, instantaneously humanity throughout all generations has been plagued with what the word of God calls this thing called sin. Every single generation from Adam and Eve, including ours, every person the Bible says some really bad news about is born into this world with this disease, if you will, this blood disease that is called sin that separates us from Jesus Christ. And when sin entered the human equation, there was this extremely pervasive and deadly and subtle side effect that came with sin. And it's this side effect that we call worry. And I define worry as this. It's just simply an insecurity about the future. Whether it's your future 10 minutes from now that you're worried about, 10 days from now that you're worried about, 10 months, 10 years from now, worry is simply some degree of insecurity about what's going to take place in the future, right? That's what it is. I think what's so deadly and pervasive about worry as a side effect of sin is how subtle it is. Let's talk honest for a minute. Sometimes when I'm worrying, it not only feels reasonable, it actually feels responsible, right? Come on, parents. When I'm worrying about my kids and the well-being of my kids, it doesn't only seem like a reasonable emotion and feeling to have, it seems like a responsible one, right? The only problem with that, see, here's what worry really is when you start to look at it, and here's why Jesus speaks so strongly against it. Worry is just low-grade fear. It's fear in its curious stage. And you've heard the quote before, curiosity killed the... Cat, and I'm completely fine with more and more cats being gone from planet Earth. <laughs> but what I cannot handle is when curiosity kills you and I. And what worry is, is nothing more than fear in its curious stage. And the problem with that is if you stay curious with your fears long enough, it will graduate to fears that become debilitating. And that's when the enemy of your soul has you. And this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount of all things, he takes a whole section, he takes a whole talking point to talk specifically about this thing called worry. He says this, I tell you the truth, do not worry. Now when the sustainer of life says do not, that's not a suggestion. Can we all agree? When the sustainer of life says do not, that's a command, right? Which is crazy because, again, worry is so subtle, it's so low grade, it feels, it feels not only reasonable most of the time, it feels responsible a lot of the time. And here you have the Savior of the universe and he comes and says, hey, I want you to fight those feelings that it's reasonable and responsible. And here's why. He gets real practical. He goes, here's why. Worry can't add a single inch to your stature. He says, you know, worry cannot contribute anything of any type of value to your day. And he knows it's going to feel so right and so reasonable and so responsible. But he says, I tell you the truth, don't do it. Don't do it because you're wasting heart space and you're wasting energy because it's going to return to you nothing of kingdom value. Right now in our country, the psychic industry alone is a $2 billion a year industry, and they project it to grow by 2.5% for at least the next five years. It's not going away. Think about that. Literally one human is paying another broken, flawed human who they hope has some type of, I guess, supernatural gift to tap into the future and tell you things about you that you really want to know. And why is that? It's because we worry and we don't like worry. And so what we want to do is know enough about the future that we can put some control around it, right? Since the Garden of Eden, this is what sin has created, a desire for us to have enough clarity about the future that we can put some control around it. 
That's, that's the plight of humankind. And so we even go to people in business and pay them money to say things like, hey, that husband, he's right around the corner. You're like, how much do I owe you? Thank you very much, right, ladies? And you walk out, and that's what you wanted to know because it's a deep desire of your heart. And he hasn't came around lately, and you're wondering if it's going to happen. It's, it's, it's insecurity about your future. Or you let one of them start reading the lines on your palms and, and, and telling you that that career right now and you're in the midst of being unemployed, it's right around the corner and it's going to pay more than you ever thought. Oh, well, thank you very much. How much do I owe you? Thanks for reading that line on my palm. Or, or they'll put out some of these things they call tarot cards and, 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 and then they tell you that your kids are not only going to be okay in this dark situation they're in, but they're actually going to be like awesome someday at something. And you go, well, thank you for reading that card with that tiger and that lynx and that thing on it. That makes all the sense. Appreciate that. How much do I owe you? They'll tell you that that sickness isn't going to end in death, which is what you're really worried about. That, that, that spouse that's gotten sick and they're like, no, it's not going to, it's going to end great. Well, thank you very much, right? And this one's huge. They'll tap into the other side of the grave because uh, one of the deepest, most difficult human feelings to experience is grief and mourning, right? And a lot of times we just want some, some rest from that and we want some, we want some relief from that. And so we'll go and pay people to, to kind of to, to tap into that other world and be like, it, was your father's name Bear? Larry, and Terry, 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 it was Terry, it was Terry, okay, yeah, I knew it was Terry, okay, did he own a blue shirt once, yeah, because everyone does, right, okay, Terry, I see in him now, he's got a blue shirt on, he wants you to know he loves you, and you're like, oh my word, that's all I needed to hear, thank you so much, I'm like, I could have told you that your parents love you from the other side of the grave, they're your parents, right, but we pay money for that, and we believe in it, because from the beginning of time, we have craved some security and clarity and control around our future, Right? That's how we, we, we try and fight off worry. And I'm going to suggest throughout this whole, whole day today that there's a greater solution that's more sustainable. And that costs you nothing but costs someone everything. I was reading an article from a, an American rabbi and he said this. He said, since time immemorial, humans have longed to learn that which the future holds for them. Thus, in ancient civilization, and even today with fortune-telling as a true profession, humankind continues to be curious about its future, both out of sheer curiosity as well as a desire to prepare for it. The problem, though, with some of these methods that I've just mentioned is the future is reserved for the creator of the future and for him alone. In fact, he's so serious about being the author of our future that he told his people Israel in his holy law this. He said, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, I don't even know what that is, or one who inquires of the dead for whoever does these things. Listen to how strong this language is, Red Rocks. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Why? Because the future is God's. He's the king over it. He's sovereign over it. And he has a plan and his plan cannot be thwarted. And he doesn't like when we, his humans, try and get involved in his territory and start messing with that. I want to read you what I call a back to the future verse. It's Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says, remember the former things. Okay. Sometimes to, to, to find peace in your future, you got to go back to the past and you got to concentrate on the goodness and the character of God in your past experiences. Right. This is what he's saying. He says, remember the former things, those of long ago, and I love this, I am God. 
and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, hear God say this, Red Rocks, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. The rabbi would go on to say in his article, predicting the future is trying to enter into the territorial rights and privileges of God who alone has the right reserved unto himself. That's some big statements from God. And what I want us to see as we start this foretold series is how intricately concerned and how deeply concerned God is about your future. If we could just know that, right? If we could just walk out of our respected campus with a little more confidence and trust that the king of the universe, the one that holds it all in his palm of his hands, if he just really had my future in the palm of his hands, then I could throw this thing called worry out the door. And so here's what, what I want to do to start this series off. I want to look at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. Because in those chapters... Matthew gives six prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to do something that's a little dangerous for me because I don't normally preach in this fashion or this style. But instead of really preaching for a few minutes, I'm going to pretend that I'm a, I'm a defense lawyer. And I'm defending the claims of Jesus as the Messiah. And the plaintiffs and the one who are bringing the case, they're calling it a hoax. And so if you guys would do me a favor at all campuses, if you guys would pretend as we read Matthew 1 and 2, if you guys would act as an unbiased jury, as unbiased as you can, you're not trying to prove the deity of Jesus. You're not trying to disprove the deity of Jesus. You're just trying as a jury member to hear the evidence and see what you think, okay? So I'm going to put on my lawyer hat. As soon as I make my lawyer case in point, I'm going to take that off and I'm going to quickly put on a mathematician hat. No joke, Sean, because that's not my strength. I'm going to give you some, some mathematical probabilities of the case I just made in the courtroom. And then all of that information, more than we normally take, all that information we take in, I promise you, is going to be to drive home a point that should matter to all of us about dealing with worry, especially during this season of Christmas. So I start with Matthew chapter 1. Now, you journalism majors, you should know this, but Matthew does a really dangerous thing in Matthew chapter 1 because what you're taught in journalism 101 is if you're going to write an article, that first paragraph better be awesome, right? You better catch people or they're just going to quit reading. Or if you're writing something bigger, if you're writing a book, that first chapter, it better grip people, right? Or they're going to put the book down, right? You know what Matthew starts out his book with? A genealogy. So-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so. Now, in our English and in our American context, that's not that gripping, but genealogies in the Jewish context, especially first century, was extremely gripping because it told you everything about the person that you happened to be writing about. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience about this person, Jesus, and right out of the gates, Matthew chapter 1, he's going to call him Messiah, capital M, which means, okay, it's on. But here's the reason, jury, that Matthew chooses to use a genealogy, genealogy right out of the gates is because in that genealogy, he's making a prophetic statement that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but I can prove it through the genealogy. And here's what he says. Let's read. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, capital M, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, when he says the son of Abraham and the son of David, 
Those are two qualifications that have to happen for anybody to give any credence to the idea that Matthew's arguing in court, this is the Messiah. This isn't a hoax. This whole Christianity, this whole Jesus thing, this isn't a fraud. This isn't a big scheme that's taken place over thousands of years by different writers and people in different continents and places. This, is, this, this, this guy's real. This Jesus is real. But the first thing Matthew has to do in the court to the jury, to you guys, is he has to show you historically with evidence and documentation that this kid, Jesus, right, born in Bethlehem, was not only through the bloodline of Abraham, but also found a way to be intersected in his genealogy through David, right? And so that's why he starts with the genealogy. He says, he says, he will come through the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, I want to read to you real quick Genesis 22. Because this is one of the prophecies where we get told Jesus will come through the bloodline of Father Abraham, right? It says, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And then here it is, ready? And through your seed or your offspring, your genealogy, your bloodline, right? Through your seed, here it is, all nations, not just the nation of Israel, that Abraham and Sarah were getting started, but all nations will be blessed because you obeyed me. Now, when it says all nations, this is talking about not just Jews, but Gentiles like you and I as well, correct? And we know that the one true Messiah that came claiming to not only be the Messiah for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles is who? Jesus. And so Jesus has to come through the line of Abraham, but then it goes on to say this, and he gets into the, the, the boring stuff, but it's not really that boring when you think of the implications. He goes, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, awesome name, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashom, Nashom the father of Salmon, awesome, can't wait to eat dinner, uh, Salmon the father father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And here's where, here's where he, he puts into evidence for the court, for you, the jury, Obed, the father of Jesse. And we know whose father Jesse was Jesse, the father of King David. And then he goes on and we won't read it for the court's sake and for time's sake, but he goes on to give all of the rest of the genealogies from Abraham to David all the way up to when Jesus was born into the house of Joseph who came from the line of David. That's what you'll read in the rest of Matthew. And the reason Matthew, if he was in court, and I'm the defense lawyer, the reason we would submit this on behalf of Matthew is to simply say this. Now listen, jury, I know you're not gonna believe that Jesus was the Messiah simply because he came from Abraham and David's bloodline. Because if you're an unbiased analytical jury, here's what you say. Well, yeah, and it took a couple thousand years to finally find the kid that matches that genealogical profile. So, so why would we believe that? There's so many, of course, over time, you're eventually going to find somebody through a bloodline if you look hard enough. And if you really want to create a hoax, eventually you're going to find a kid who matches that. You finally found one in the Jerusalem area, this young little kid named Jesus. And so Matthew knows, hey, this is building, but it's not enough to win a court case. And so what Matthew does next is awesome. He continues to write about Joseph and Mary giving birth to a kid that they claim was a birth by a virgin, right? Let's read about it. In fact, uh, what we're about to pick up and read, Joseph was told by Mary that they were having a baby, but it was a virgin birth. 
And Joseph said, I'm going to divorce you, right? Because no one's ever had a virgin birth before. And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord, because as we read in Isaiah 46, God's plan will always go forth and prevail. An angel comes and talks to Joseph, and here's what he says. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place, Matthew writes, and for the court's sake, the jury's sake, all this takes place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. And now Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, verbatim. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is interesting. A couple things have to happen if Matthew's going to prove to this jury that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, capital M. Number one, we've already discussed that he's got to come through the bloodline, Abraham and David, but that's problematic on its own merits, right? Number two, and this is way bigger, got to be born of a virgin. But if you're sitting there and you're an honest, unbiased jury and you're analytical, you're going, okay, now here's the deal. Anyone can have a kid and claim it was virgin birth, right? Anyone can do that. And so what I would do if I'm Matthew is what he does. I wouldn't just stop there with, with no more evidence. I would keep building. But I would stop there and make a point with the jury for a minute. I would say you at least need to consider the age of these kids when they claim to have a virgin birth and it was the Messiah. You need to at least consider in retrospect as a jury what they were going to go through when they signed up to be a part of what the plaintiffs think are a hoax. You guys tracking with me? Like they're going to be completely excommunicated from their society. They're going to have the scarlet letter, right? Nobody's going to believe the virgin birth thing. And don't get arrogant now in 2015. None of us would have believed it either. At one point, Mary's under so much scrutiny from the people that she has to go out of town and she has to move in with Aunt Elizabeth for a while. At one point, because of having this virgin birth, they were actually going to have to move for one and a half to possibly two years to Egypt. That's where their enemies live. It's bad when you got to go live in your enemy's land to be more safe than the land you live, for, live in, right? And if I was Matthew, I would stop and say, do you understand how much money did these teenagers have to get paid by whoever's behind this hoax to make this kid the Messiah? How much money did they have to pay them? And what kind of manipulation did they have to do with these kids, these teenagers, Mary and Joseph, to convince them that all of this was worth all of the mess and madness? Because now in retrospect, another thing I would tell the court is ultimately Mary, because of him being the Messiah, was going to have to be willing as a mother to watch her son be nailed to a cross. Is there enough money, mom, in the world to sign up for that type of hoax? Like, like I at least want you to think about that, court. That's what I would say. But I'd also go, I, I, I know that's still not enough because anyone can get lucky and have a kid who comes through the right bloodline. And then claims that it was a virgin birth. And so what Matthew does is says, I'd like to submit some more evidence to the court. And now we read Matthew 2.6. And what Matthew is doing in Matthew 2.6 is a direct prophecy from the prophet Micah. He's quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is about 650 years before Jesus would even be born. Micah predicted, foretold, where Jesus specifically would be born, the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, in the land of Judah are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah. Here it is. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now here's where I think the jury, if they weren't interested before, 
starts to sit up a little bit in their chairs and go, okay, this is a lot of coincidences now. 650 years before this, this, this kid they're claiming is the Messiah is born, this prophet to the nations of Israel in the ancient Torah says it's going to be out of Bethlehem. And everyone knew this. You didn't have to be a scholar. Every average synagogue attender knew that the Messiah at some day would come from King David's town, Bethlehem. Now, what I would say to the court is, here's what's interesting. Do you know how Jesus was born in Bethlehem? A Gentile Roman ruler, for whatever reason, felt the need to have a census. So now all of a sudden, Joseph, who's in the bloodline of David, as we just read, has to go back to his homeland for the census. He has to go there and say, I'm David, I'm part of David, or I'm Joseph, I'm part of David's bloodline, and I'm in Bethlehem to say, I'm I'm a human, count me, count my wife, count my son. And I, I would look at the court and go, now I understand that Mary and Joseph and whoever's behind this hoax about Jesus being the Messiah would have known to go to Bethlehem about eight months into the pregnancy Right, so that they could say, oh, we were also born in Bethlehem. But what's interesting to me and who I would call to sit on the stand for a few minutes and question them is that Gentile ruler who wasted a whole bunch of time and didn't need anybody's money trying to help in this hoax to get Jesus to Bethlehem by creating a census to make it plausible. Now the jury's got to be thinking, all right, there's a lot of components that are coming together for this kid to just be yet another person that they're claiming like they always did is the Messiah. And I think Matthew's at this point probably thinking, I I think the jury might start to sway, so I'm going to really pour it on now. And he says, I'm not done submitting evidence. I'd like to submit some more, Your Honor. And and then he submits Matthew uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And I'll tell you in a second after I read it why this is so important. So Joseph got up. He just had another conversation with an angel took Jesus, the child, and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now he's talking about a completely different prophet, Hosea, from another time frame. And he quotes Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son, capital S. Matthew saying, not only did we know this kid would come from Abraham and David's bloodline, We also knew that this kid would be born in Bethlehem. That also happened. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. We also knew that we didn't know specifics, but we knew from the prophet Hosea hundreds of years ago that this Messiah would spend time in Egypt and he would be called out of Egypt. So why does Jesus go to Egypt? That's what I would want to talk to the court. They're still thinking, ah, this is a hoax. Ah, this is just, you guys have planned this. You've made this happen. I'd say, well, okay, you got to understand the reason Jesus went to Egypt was to avoid a genocide that he, that he caused. Some wise men came through town one day with really expensive gifts. These were dignitaries. In fact, I'm going to talk all about this Christmas Eve. You don't want to miss. Bring a friend. There's even a prophecy in, in Psalm 79 that talks about these men from the Far East coming to bring this ruler gifts. It's beautiful. We'll talk more about it. I wish I could build a stronger case, but you guys are like, please stop building a case and make your point. I, I'm getting there. This matters, though. This matters. The reason Jesus and Mary and Joseph went to Egypt was because as soon as Herod met those dignitaries and they told them that through some astronomical stuff, they believe that the Messiah is here, this Jewish Messiah, and they want to come and bring him gifts and honor him and worship him. Do you know what a narcissistic person like Herod is? He's the ruler of the known world. He's the Roman official that says, no, 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 I'm the only one that gets gifts and gets worshiped. 
Herod acts cool in the moment and says, hey, cool, have a great trip. Hey, when you find out where that Jesus is, can you go ahead and tell me? And they're like, we'll do. And then as soon as Herod has them gone, he calls in the scribes and the Pharisees and says, hey, where do our prophets say that this kid Jesus, this Messiah is going to be born? And they say, Micah 5, 2, we just read it, right? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so he puts out this edict that all kids in a particular region of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Judea, and all those regions, all boys under two are going to be slaughtered. A literal genocide. And Red Rocks, listen to me. For the, for the sake of being the jury, this isn't, a, this isn't a fairy tale, this genocide. This is a historically documented fact of genocide that we can lean into. You understand this for the court's sake? This is a historically documented genocide that, according to history, Jesus caused because he threatened a narcissistic, demon-possessed leader named Herod to do something as evil and as vile as that. So Jesus has to go to Egypt. And a prophet some 750 years before Jesus was even born said, yeah, he's going to go to Egypt and be called out of Egypt and then he's going to come home. And then that's what Jesus does. And this is where Matthew goes, now I'm going to really start. Now I'm just showing off. He goes, I'm going to add some more stuff into evidence, please. And we don't have time to read it. You can go back and read it. Uh, if you're taking notes, it's in Matthew 2, verses 16 and 18. But on the way home, they get prophesied about, or excuse me, I got to back up. Sorry, this is so much info. I am not smart enough to do this type of stuff, but I love it. It's exciting. This next prophecy, prophecy number five, is Jeremiah specifically talking about this future genocide in detail. So you can not only read Matthew on your own, but you, then you can go back in full context and read this prophecy about this genocide taking place hundreds of years later that Jesus sparked and actually was a part of causing, Right? And then one more, Matthew says, just in case five isn't enough, uh, I'm going to give you one more. On the way home, Jesus is going back to Galilee where Mary and Joseph had lived prior to all this mess a couple years ago. And on their way back to Galilee, again, they get warned by an angel and it says, move somewhere else. Because after Herod died and everything they thought was safe, Herod's son was put into rulership. So they said, just to be safe, go and pick a different hometown. You know what they picked? The place the Bible said Jesus would grow up, Nazareth. And Nazareth is this backwater, blue-collar, industrial, kind of dark. It's kind of the Commerce City of the Denver metro area. No offense if you're from Commerce City. But, you know, Commerce City is gray sky, even when it's completely blue everywhere in Denver. I don't know, and smoke and steam and coming out. It's just kind of that fill. That, that's, that's Nazareth, right? It, it's, it's the butt of jokes. In fact, Jesus' friend Nathaniel at one point says, what good could possibly come from Nazareth? And Jesus goes, I'm all right, and I came from there. I grew up there. I kind of like it. I did some good work there, some good carpentry there. Got my fingerprint kind of all over it. And now here's the deal. I'm going to rest the case now with just six prophecies and two chapters of Matthew. But if I was really a defense lawyer and I had all the time in the world to win my case, I wouldn't rest after the sixth prophecy. You know what I would rest? After 330-some prophecies of Jesus' not only birth, but life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and second coming. When you put all those parts of his life together, there's over 330 prophecies that speak sometimes in specific, intricate detail just the cross alone. Go and read Psalms 22 this week. 
It not only talks about being pierced in your hands and your feet, which by the way, when David wrote that, it was 1,200 years before Jesus would be born and it was 800 years before Roman crucifixion was even invented. What's David talking about piercing hands and feet unless he's a prophet of God? It not only talks about that in Psalms 22, but I present the evidence that it also said that Jesus would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver 1,200 years before it happened. I would also submit that it said people would literally gamble and roll dice for Jesus' clothes in Psalms 22, 1,200 years before it would actually happen. And then it happens. And then I would send the court to Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 53, where it talks in explicit detail about what the actual crucifixion process and pain would look like in detail. And we haven't even gotten to 50 prophecies by that point, And we still got 330 some to take care of before I finally rest my case. Now, here's the whole point that I have been trying to make. And here's what's unique. The, the point isn't trying to make an argument for anyone in, in any of our campuses that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. You think that's why I'm making this great argument because there's so much evidence and there's so many facts that are, that are kind of historically really hard to ignore. You think we could just look at history and we could look at facts and we could look at archaeology and we could look at all this stuff and we go, how can you not believe in Jesus? And here's the deal. People will still say, I don't believe in Jesus because here's the truth about humanity. We can create a narrative and find enough information about anything we want to verify the beliefs that we want to have. Is that not true? Even as believers, we can do that. Just look at Facebook. That's what Facebook is. That's everyone putting their thoughts out there with some pretty detailed arguments to prove their point. And you'll have a bunch of other awesome people who put a bunch of details out there to prove that they're wrong and that they're right. And both groups really believe they're right and the other person is wrong. And my point is this, I didn't say all this for a non-believer who's going to come through our church to go, oh, I'm in, that makes sense. Here's why. Salvation is a miracle from God. It is a regeneration. It is a rebirth. Birth is a miracle, right? Come on, moms, you, you have been through it. It is a miracle. It is a birth. Birth is. And salvation is the regeneration via the wooing of the Holy Spirit to a human soul and spirit, right? That's what it is. It's supernatural. I, I talked about this information for every believer at every one of our campuses who needs to be reminded about their future. And here's what these prophecies, as intricate and amazing historically as they are, especially 2,000 years later, as we're looking at them in retrospect, what a blessing that we get to do that, right? Here's what I want you to remember, though. Well, we all want someone to tell us specifics about our future, so that we can deal with worry? Well, we want everyone to give us specifics about where to go to college and who we should marry and if that sickness is going to turn out all right and if our kids are going to be okay by the time we finally get them out the door or if our son or daughter is ever going to come back to Christ. Well, we would love to have specifics about our future so, so we can have some clarity and control. The message God is sending to us through this account in Matthew is this. I don't want you to know specifics about your future. I want you to intricately know the person who holds your future. That's what this is all about. That's why I, I spent so much time with a lot of information in trying to build a case. Do you understand, Red Rocks Church, that if God just spelled out for you your future in detail, you would have begged him to not do that? And yet all we want, we pay people, like I said, psychics to tell us, just, just to throw me a bone. Please tell me something that gives me a, a quick sense of peace or hope or, or joy or something, right? Or relief. And, 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 and here's the deal about life. 
in this life, you're going to have a whole lot of trouble. Believer, listen to me. I'm going to tell you the truth about being a disciple. In this life, Jesus says, you will have a whole lot of trouble. You're going to have tribulations in this lifetime. You are going to have some really profound setbacks that feel overwhelming. You are, as King David said, you're going to at times walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You're also at the same time, all of us are going to have some extremely blessed and amazing moments that you wouldn't trade for the world. Your life is going to be just this great roller coaster ride. If you're a disciple of Jesus, really, if you're a human, it's going to be a roller coaster ride of really big highs and really big lows. And what God's doing in his infinite goodness is he's saying, I'm not going to tell you hardly anything in the Bible about the specifics of your future, not 10 minutes from now or not 10 years from now. But what I'm going to tell you in great detail, like we just read, were the specifics about the one that can do something about whatever your future holds. Because the goal isn't to know your future, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't have enough blessed and neat things about your future to offset the difficult and scary and fearful things that you're also going to encounter in your future until Jesus comes back and takes us home. So God says, I don't want you to know specifics about your future. I want you to know who holds that view. I want you to be reminded that Jesus, 10 years from now, when you get that test back from the doctor and your whole family changes in a second, Jesus was there the whole time. Because our creator is not bound by three dimensions and the time-space continuum. You have to understand this. This is what blows our human minds because we're bound to that. And so we keep God in that small little context and box. But listen to me, Red Rocks Church. God is not bound by time and space, which means five years from now, when you might walk through one of the most difficult relational trials of your life, God's been there the whole time, as much as he's here right now. And here's the neat thing about Jesus. He's the one friend of all your friendship circle whose heart rate will never speed up and who will never get nervous no matter what you experience or what you're going through. Why? Because he holds the few. He's been there for, when you, when you get to that difficult place and worry is starting to turn into fear, debilitating fear, Jesus says, I've been here the whole time. I'm not shocked. I'm not scared. I'm not nervous. I'm sovereign. I'm the God who's the end and the beginning. I declare the end from the beginning and my purposes are going to prevail. And so what God wants us to do is to be so in love with Jesus, not our future, not predicting it, not controlling it, not trying to find some peace from, hey, tell me some good things that are going to happen. No, no, no. The good thing that's going to happen in your future is that no matter what you walk through, you have a shepherd who's walking right next to you, and he's the good shepherd. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear anything or worry anything because God's rod and his staff is good, and it will protect you. It will keep you. So the goal, why Jesus came into this world, was I want relationship with you, Red Rocks. I'm not here as a cosmic vending machine to make sure that your future gives you everything that you need. I'm here to give you me. So when it is great, all glory to me. And when you're walking through hell and high water, all the pressure can be cast on me. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest for your souls. Take my burden, it's easy. Take my yoke, it's light. This is the heart of God. This is why as we study prophecies for the next three weeks, the whole goal is this. Rest, trust, hope, peace, joy. This is what Christmas is all about, right? Band, you guys can go ahead and come on up at all campuses. This is what Christmas is all about.
He sent someone into the world to understand what we go through, to suffer in our place, and then to simply say, listen, I can't give you much information about your future because you think you want it, but you won't want it. But what I can tell you is intricate details about the person who's going to be not only with you right now, but he's already in your future. And he already has a plan and a purpose, and it's not to harm you. It's to give you a hope, and it's to give you a future. This is the good news of Jesus and the gospel. At all of our campuses, would you stand? I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope it brings. I thank you for the life it brings. And God, I pray this weekend at all of our campuses, who's ever, who's ever hearing your word, this particular passage of scripture and this particular idea, God, I pray that through the, just the generosity, God, of your Holy Spirit, that you would increase our degrees of trust this Christmas season. If there's ever a season where trust is attacked and where worry can be so pervasive, it's Christmas. And it should not be that way. And so, Jesus, I'm asking through the, the gentleness and the generosity of your Holy Spirit that every one of us at all of our campuses would walk out of our respected doors with such this quiet sense of peace and trust. And not only that, but God, as I've studied this for the last few weeks, it has caused joy to erupt in, in, in my soul for who you are. And so, God, as we worship you at all our campuses, I'm praying that our worship would be a reflection of how good you've been to us in Christ Jesus. God, all these things I ask and I pray, I pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. At all campuses, let's worship.